Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS, are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice. But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online. We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnneRice.com website. Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com slash Anne Rice fan page, no spaces. If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her characters, then join us at Anne Rice fan page on facebook.com. See you there. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Yeah, well, we had to do you that. should have heard the previous one. My <laughs> goodness, he just was like, so are you having some energy regulation problem or I, something? Going I, on the previous there? one had too much personality, so we redid it. We didn't want to frighten people. And we've already got way too much personality. Way, way too much personality. In fact, that's what we should have called this show. Too much personality. <laughs> With Christopher and Eric. <laughs> Or shh with Christopher and Eric. Because <laughs> that's what certain members of our family are probably doing whenever they listen to it. I told you what my cousin said to me about our previous podcast, um, The Dinner Party Show, where we interviewed celebrities and did she funny said, sketches. I have children. Yeah, I said, do you listen? Well, she's like, well, I would like to listen in the car, but I have children. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Well, I actually, I got it. I was like, oh, yeah, no. We are marked explicit on iTunes. Which seems fair, because we are not moderating that. Yeah, so. we are not. We, are we not. say pretty much whatever the fuck we want to. Absolutely. So, yeah. fucking lootly. Okay, so Citizen Detective Month continues here at TDPS. Uh, we have, last week we did a True Crime TV Club about a Citizen Detective. This week, there was... Well, it was about a journalist, and yeah. so it was an interesting sort of take on detective... Because journalists really do investigative work. This week, there was some conversation right before we started this episode about what what category this particular detective falls into, because she is a, she's mostly a victim, but she also has to become her own advocate, if you will. So, and she doesn't ever really... Um, let go. One of the interesting things she has in common with our citizen detective who's coming next week, mm -hmm. Clark Williams, she, is that she was a social worker. Ah, interesting. Interesting. So Clark Williams, if you don't know, is probably 
the man who we're going to call him the man who solved the Billy Newton murder. We all sort of did our part in the he process. Really is, but, and the LAPD really tied it up, as yeah. even Clark would probably admit. But Clark found the person. And he did it by doing uh, an unbelievable amount of research into the life of the victim, Billy Newton. And that's he's going to be here next week and the week after to talk to us about the cases he has consulted on since getting all that publicity for what right, he did for Billy. Because he made him famous and people are really like asking him for their help and they should. He's yeah. smart. He's right? amazing. He's really amazing. So so definitely listen to that episode even if you think this a, one is a fucking turkey. But a part of his technique was born of his um, background as being a social worker and – the woman at the center of this story right, is a social worker. Also a social worker, and she develops a network of non-traditional, mm-hmm. non-law enforcement investigators to help her um, as she investigates this, uh, this crime. So let me cue up what the show is we're going to be talking about. It's an episode of a show called Deadline Crime with Tamron Hall. The episode is called Never Stop Looking. It's season three, episode seven. Um, uh, we streamed it on Amazon here in the U.S. It's probably available on other platforms. Um, Tamron Hall herself, as she says in the introduction, was her family was the victim of violent crime. Her sister was murdered. Does I don't know if it was ever solved. They don't really get into Tamron's story here. She is truly the host of the of the show. Um, and I think we picked this episode based off the synopsis. This was one that you found or I found. I, can't I found remember. it, and we were looking for examples of. We were doing Citizen Detective Month, and we right. were looking for citizen detectives, people. And this was the thing that they said in promoting the show was this was the uh, an investigation with this woman never gave up. Right, that it went on for years, but she never let go of her belief. Yeah. And this is essentially what happened to her. And as most of these shows do, they summarize it at the – well, not all of them do this, but a lot of them, they summarize the whole case kind of at the front of the show and then they thread it out over time. But uh, about three decades ago in Rochester, New Hampshire, a Ruth Vossler's two small children were basically abducted from their home and they were abducted by their father. And she and their father were in the process of separating. And um, she – her – she wasn't able to find her kids. She wasn't able to get access to her kids. She didn't know where they had gone. It was 1986. There was no social media. People were not as trackable and searchable as they are now. And so they get into the sort of the origin story of what turned out to be a nightmarish marriage. But Ruth grew up hundreds of miles away on a small dairy farm in northwest Wisconsin. Uh, they interview her sister, Sharon Lind. Uh, by 1980, Ruth is a social worker in Madison who wants very much to get married. And so to find a husband, she goes looking in the personal ads of a magazine called Mother Earth News. And this may have been, <laughs> though they didn't say this on the show, the beginning of the problem. So the definition of Mother Earth News was that it was an alternative publication devoted to farming which and was not my impression of Mother Earth News, but okay. Were you aware of Mother Earth News? I had heard of it before, but that was not. What was your impression? I didn't impression? think of it as being farming. It was a little more hippy-dippy than farming. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, organic farming and yeah. composting and, you know, how to hide your pot plants among your geraniums mm. and that sort of. I don't think they had that. But you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But it was the part, it was the, the farmers who might be doing that anyway. That was more my sense of it as it's like an alternative farming magazine rather than, you know, yeah. the 4-H 
um, publication or some other more agriculturally, mainstream agriculturally driven. I think it was a bad publication, but it was a little on the less mainstream side. Right. So they they say that she uses that she finds a personal ad in the magazine for a man in New Hampshire who seems to, quote, share her values. And I thought that statement coupled with it's an alternative publication, I was like, let's get, what are the values here? What are we talking about? I mean, there's, I want to get married, I want to have a family, all that sort of stuff, I want to grow old together. I don't know, I have but, some mixed feelings about it. Having met her through this, I was mm -hmm. like, hmm, I wonder what those shared values were. Maybe it had nothing to do with being in a marriage. I don't know, but we'll see. The man is 37-year-old Charles Vossler. He's a high school teacher. They become pen pals. Then they meet, and she thinks, in her own words, that the man matches the ad when they finally meet. And we don't know what her specifications were, so yeah. we don't know, but we take her word for it. But she packs her bag, and she moves to Newton, New Hampshire. Then the first of many surprises comes down the pike. His parents, who he said were staying with him briefly, are in fact living with him. And they are living in the house that she is now supposed to live in. But she marries him anyway in June of 18, uh, 1881, June yeah. of 1981. No, the kids have not been missing quite that long, but... <laughs> But yeah. In June of 1981, they walk down the aisle together and they start a real estate biz and move to Lubeck, Maine, where they become house flippers. Which is interesting. Yeah. Charles wants a family right away. And before long, they have a son, Charles, nicknamed CJ. Two years later, they have another son, Billy. Uh, Charles, the father, the senior Charles, as we shall call him. There are a lot of Charleses in this special. Okay. He's not a hands-on dad. And allegedly what he says to her is, you do the diapers and the feedings, I'll take over once they turn two. Which I think is, keep that detail in your head, in that age, in get your them, head. Get them potty trained and then. Yeah. So Charles opens a real estate office in Rochester, New Hampshire. So that apparently they've moved back from Maine to New Hampshire. Ruth works in the office. And then he convinces her to stay home with the boys. So I guess she worked in the office while she was pregnant. And then once she had the kids, she stayed home with the boys. I assume. He's controlling the finances to the degree that he doles out the money she is allowed to take to the grocery store to spend on Again, groceries. Again, cash. Here's $100 yeah. to buy the groceries with. Another uh, – maybe that wasn't a surprise. Maybe that was one of their shared values. I have no idea. I The entire – that she put up with any aspect of this entire relationship mm -hmm. from beginning to end is astonishing to me. But there's a whole th list of things that people, particularly women, will put up with that – I do not understand. Also, we are interviewing Ruth years later. I'm she's, not, yeah, she yeah. probably wouldn't have put up with it either. She's talking about her life in retrospect. She's in, in doing one camera shot or whatever. Okay, so Charles's parents, who are a surprise uh, in the house, winter in Florida. So there's some mercy there. But that doesn't stop Ruth from getting into a lot of conflicts with Charlie's mother, who she accuses. And this is one of those they... It's like they recount a third of this conversation between the two of them. Like, for some reason, at the dinner table one day, or the breakfast table, whichever one it may be, <laughs> that hour, Ruth's mother says to Ruth, there are two people in life, the ones who get two it. Two kinds of people Two in kinds life. of people There's in more life. than two people. <laughs> there are two people in life, <laughs> me and you. Oh, shit. We better get cooking. <laughs> 
Everyone also, else we should do everything because there are now just, no, no other no people. Else. Everyone else is just a mannequin. Like, <laughs> no, no, there are two kinds of people. They suffered an existential crisis at the breakfast table. This is that thing, the, the left behind. We're the only ones left behind. <laughs> Damn it. Um, what is she so? Okay, she says there are two kinds of people in your life: the ones who help you and the ones who get in your way. Uh-huh. And you're getting in my way, Ruth. And I'm like, wait a minute, how did what precipitated this conversation? I'm not trying to blame Ruth for this crazy woman's. And did the and did um, his Charles's mom leave with quiche dripping right. off of her face <laughs> after saying that to her daughter-in-law at the right. breakfast table, like splat. So Ruth feels she's disappearing in her marriage. I would be disappearing into the woods if these were my in-laws. <laughs> I would just be disappearing. Right. I'm going to Los Angeles. Don't wait up. Uh, Charles begins traveling more and more for work. I swear to God, if I had a dime for every time we hear that line in one of these specials, the, someone began traveling more and more for work. Oh, shit. Uh-oh. Some, this is bad, bad shit's, shit's getting ready coming. to go down. Um, one day he tells her, oh, I bought a house for all of us where we can live in town. I guess they were living outside of town at that point. She's like, oh, that's great. And then he takes her to see it, and it's a fucking wreck. In fact, it's in such a state of disrepair that when her two-year-old goes to open a cabinet, the entire face of the cabinet comes off, which is one of the better reenactments we've ever seen because it, they use an actual two-year-old, and he just sort of runs out of the kitchen carrying the cabinet door, and I'm or like... a child, anyway. <laughs> just two. He seemed he a little very, He was young enough that I thought, I'm so glad I didn't work on that shoot. Yes. And have to... How many times did it take to get that child actor to run out of the kitchen <laughs> holding up the cabinet they door? They glued it to his hands. It, was, <laughs> it went faster than you think. <laughs> Not glue it to his hands. TDPS does not support the statements of Eric Shawquin. I am TDPS. I am TDPS. 50% of TDPS does not support the statements. The other 50% is making them. 50% of TDPS does not want to delete the social media comments about these statements. Okay. Um... Ruth basically says to Charles, we can't live in this wreck and renovate it with these two toddlers. This is this is insane. We can't we can't live like this. P.S. Charles is also not working to fix this house. He hasn't done yeah. anything. So that's also part of the problem. It's not only a wreck, but nobody is actually actively renovating it. Um, and he says, well, you know, tough darts, honey, because I've spent all the money. The house is, you know, like I don't, I don't have any other cash. We can't move. I spent it on the house and. Apparently, there's money for the renovation, though, so I'm not sure how that math actually works. I've never been a good math person, but I do know assholes, and Charles sounds like an asshole. Well, in that he wasn't doing any renovation, so yeah. maybe there wasn't any money for the reservation <laughs> renovation either. Um, so uh, we talked about the cabinet thing. That was Billy, the two-year-old. He, right. That was his With work. the cabinet glued to his hands. So their marriage is in the shitter, and but Ruth thinks that they're they're going to work it out. They're just having a tough time. And then on September tenth, nineteen eighty six, Charles shows up to an apartment that he's found for them, which he has put them in, and is not really living in himself. And he basically says, "I've talked to a lawyer about solidifying our separation." And Ruth's reaction is, "What? What separate? We're separating? I didn't know we were separating." Um, so he claims that he's forgotten the name of the lawyer that he spoke to. Because nothing is suspicious about that. I can't remember. I think it was lawyery, lawyer man, McLawyerson. I don't know. Lawyer something lawyery. Yeah. Something lawyery. So Ruth gets her own lawyer. <laughs> because she finally picked up the clue phone. And she is seeking custody of the kids. 
and a hearing is set for mid-October. So then on Thursday, October 9th, she agrees to let him take the children to visit some relatives in Connecticut, which I think is an interesting choice when you're suing for custody of your own children. Like, I'm, I feel like were any lawyers consulted about how this could have been negotiated or, like, Connecticut, I know, is not that far from New Hampshire, but anyway... Don't have a lot of experience with child custody. So. I don't think Connecticut was really an important part of this story. I, it was out of state. It was giving the, the guy the right to take the children. Out of state, yes. I believe I take the children, period. Yeah. like Because he didn't even go to Connecticut. Well, yeah, spoiler alert. So she <laughs> says goodbye, heads off to work. Charlie's late picking them up. He waits until they're with a babysitter. Then he comes and he dismisses the babysitter and says, I can finish packing the rest of their things. I'll bring them back on Saturday, uh, you know, hugs and kisses to everyone. He does not bring them back on Saturday. And while he is packing up for the kids, he also steals all of the photographs and all of the evidence that he is the father and that they are any pictures of them mm -hmm. and takes them with him. So she has no visual records of the people that she's in a marriage with or of her children. And Ruth can't reach him. She calls Charlie's parents. They say they have no idea what's going on or where he is. Plot twist. He never made it to the relatives in Connecticut. Spoiler alert. I told no, you that. Yes. But, yeah, that's, that's why I said the Connecticut part was not the piece that was the—it mm -hmm. was get, letting him take the kids, period. Pretty, you can come yeah. visit the kids, but you can't take them. Monday morning, she assumes he's got a, he's got a, a, an office. He's got a business in town. She assumes, well, he'll be back on Monday, and I can confront him then. Uh-oh. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever ebooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. So Ruth has allowed Charlie, Charles, I shouldn't call him Charlie because a lot of Charles in this. This is the episode of many Charles. She's allowed Charles to take the kids out of state. He has not uh, returned. He never made it to the home of the relatives he claimed he was going to be visiting. She assumes I'll confront him on Monday morning. He's got a business here in town. He's going to have to go to work. She goes to the office, finds it locked. Nobody's there. She's looking through windows, seeing stuff has been moved out. Finally, an employee emerges and says, yeah, he fired us all on Friday. I came to get my stuff. So she goes to the police. And she's, in her words, the police give her sympathy but not help. And they keep asking her, did he steal the car? She says, no, we didn't steal the car. He has his own car. Why are you asking me about the car? And they say, because if he had stolen the car, we might actually be able to do something. So he's stolen her kids, but they can't actually act because he's the father and technically has a right to custody until the court has said otherwise. 
anyway, oh, this one got me riled up. This yeah. is really this is one of the ones that will put your teeth on edge. So it is it is really sort of startling, and I think some of it has to do with the time frame. Like, yeah, I don't know that that would be the case at this point, Mm-mm. but at that time there was you know greater sorts of misunderstandings and um, things being in favor of of parental rights in a way that benefited men in relationships that probably isn't the case anymore or not a default position anyway. Yeah. That they interview a gentleman named Dave Rogers, who's the director of the missing children task force or was formerly, he's retired now. And he says that the attitude in the 1980s was that if the kids were with a parent, they didn't start a search for them, that they had to have a court order to get the police to act. And the court order had to specify that one of the parents had no right to be around their kids. So, but all of this stuff that's unfolding in New Hampshire with Charles's business, he can't be doing alone, right? The office furniture was sold on Sunday, which is after he left with the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, a few, a couple weeks later, Charles' parents list the home she thought she owned with Charlie for sale. The parents are accomplices to whatever's happening, and here. that the parents didn't go to jail. Yeah, that's the part of the story that upsets me the most. Right. Like, okay. So Charlie did what Charlie did, but these were his accomplices, and they were obstructing the investigation and mm-hmm. damaging the process of whatever. And I think they should have been criminally charged. I concur, because it gets worse. Uh, so it turns out that Charles, this is what, there's what's alleged and there's what's documented, okay? You will be visited by three Charles. <laughs> you will be visited by three Charles. There is a the difference between Charles' signature and that of his father is a middle initial. That's all. They have the same name. Okay, so the Charles's father claims, "No, I bought your house, and and here's where I signed my name." And Ruth is saying, "No, my husband bought our house, and it's supposed to." He told me it was also in my name, so this is an act of fraud. Someone's been defrauded, and they're like, "No, no, I bought your house." It's just if it were him, there would be a middle initial. <laughs> yeah, I would have killed them on the lawn. I mean, I yeah. might have not been able to control myself. Absolutely. Yeah, it gets worse. Charles has quietly closed. All of their bank account that was automatically paying their bills. And he did this without telling Ruth, and he did it, I guess, weeks or months before. So she suddenly hit with a storm of unpaid bills. Yeah, not just the current ones, but ones from way back because he hasn't been paying the bills for a while. For a long time. Uh, So he had systematically drained about $200,000 from their bank account. So she has no money to search for the boys. Like, she would have to, police won't do anything, she would have to hire a private investigator. She would have to make missing persons flyers with photos of the boys she doesn't have. Because he stole them all. And it turns out that there is a work colleague of either her or his who took video at a company picnic who had like 10 seconds of the two boys on a panning shot. And, and that, those are the only records, yeah. the only visual records she has of her children, the only pictures. Because there was a story, there's some back and forth earlier in the special that we didn't get into, but there's a storage shed full of Ruth's belongings that Charles was supposed to give her access to. When she finally is able to legally get access to it, everything is cleared out. And that's where the real sensitive stuff was. The boys' birth certificates, in addition to multiple photos of them, so the video becomes the only thing she, the only record she has. Right. Um, meanwhile, the divorce isn't final, and neither is custody. But the police cannot compel Charles's parents to talk to them, which is like, yeah, it gets back to your point about like, why are these people not in jail? 
the special talks to a, a special agent who I got the sense actually worked on this case at some point. Her name is Marcy DeFede. I don't know if she actually was just a sort of talking head, but it sounded like she had actually worked yeah, with Ruth. That was my impression. Um, so Ruth's parents, who live in Wisconsin, loan her a small amount of money. They don't seem like wealthy people at all. They no. live in a farming community. So they, they loan her a bit of money so she can hire a private investigator who then follows Charles's credit card trail. And I thought well, he was dumb enough to leave. He was so thorough in everything else, he's going to use a credit card as he kidnaps his own children. And the days after the abduction, he went to Pennsylvania and he went to New Jersey. And that's enough of info for her to file for divorce and sole custody. The fact that, okay, he flew to a different state with the kids. Right. Multiple different states. And that's also enough to get the attention of the FBI. But the FBI says, we can't do anything unless Charles is officially indicted in New Hampshire for interference with custody. Then the in-laws, Charles's parents, chime in and say, no, we have custody rights because we're biological grandparents for the children. And they give depositions. And I think this is where some sort of agreement was re reached as so as not to arrest these two people. Because it has to have been because they should have been under the jail after this. They met with the children and Charles at a motel days after the abduction. So they completely knew what was going on. And what they claim is they were meeting with him to try to convince him to come back and not to do this. And Charles, the senior Charles, says he rode around in a car with his son and the children for hours, it sounds like, allegedly trying to convince him to change his mind. They also say they've spoken to him since then, but they don't reveal how or why. Then an attorney surfaces who says he's actually Charles's attorney, and while he's never met his client, uh, he is representing him, and they're disputing Ruth's custody claim. So the judge grants, in, the, in a rare moment of justice in this story, the judge grants Ruth custody and finds that Charles took the children out of state with no intention to return, and he is therefore indicted on two felony counts of interfering with custody. The FBI charges him with unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, parental kidnapping, and harboring. So somehow, and they didn't really go into much detail on this, They learned, the FBI learns that Charlie is using at least one false identity, but by the summer of 1987, the trail goes cold. Ruth returns to her career as a social, a social worker, excuse me, and she gets in touch with an, a private investigator named Monty Curtis, who agrees to work for her pro bono. And they'd interview Monty Curtis today in the special, or whatever the today of the special is, I think it was 2011 it was made, and she, Monty believes that this was the plan from the beginning. Marry Ruth, get her to sire two of his children, and then make off with them to wherever at this point. We have no idea where they've gone. Just the weirdest thing I've ever heard. And that line that he said, I mean, he abducted the kids when they were two years old, right? He said, you, you do... Well, one of them was. Yeah, I'll, I'll take over when they're two. It was like, okay... I mean, that line was obviously given to us by Ruth, so maybe it's in hindsight that she's putting this theory together. But at any rate, this is what it, this is what has happened. Yeah, they were two and four when he took them. So they believe he's getting help from friends and relatives along the way. Duh. To them, he makes false allegations of abuse against his wife, most likely to get aid from them. You know, he's got to have a cover story for all the horrible things he's done. This was the part of the story that will twist a wrench through your heart. In July of 87, Ruth's father is now terminally ill, and he goes on TV with a message for his son-in-law, and it's a public plea telling Charlie to please let him know the kids are okay, 
before he dies because he's not got much longer to live and he has lost faith that he will ever see the grandchildren again. Right. His dying wish is met with silence. In 1988, Ruth is finally granted a divorce from Charles. I don't know why it took that long to grant the divorce, but okay. She moves back to Wisconsin, thank God, and gets further away from those horrible in-laws. And she joins a support group for the parents of missing children. Here's where things start to get interesting. Well, I'm not interesting, but a ray of hope shines on this story. A tip comes in in August of 1988 that indicates Charles is living under an assumed identity in a town called Stillwell, Oklahoma. They tell Ruth to be ready to pick up your children. So... Yeah, the location makes some sense, given what they know about Charles. He's got an interest in horses. He's always wanted to live in a less urban environment. Uh, Stillwell is a magnet for folks who kind of want to live off the grid. The tip has come from a woman named Patricia Neal. She's the town librarian. And she... <laughs> the wife of Raoul Dow. <laughs> is that the wife of Raoul Dow? That was her name. That obviously isn't her. Patricia Neal was... <laughs> Wow, this is it get interesting. The author of The James and the Giant Peaches. And she starred as the original mother in The Waltons in that oh, Christmas movie, The Homecoming. She made Roald Dahl? Yeah. That was, who, that was Roald Dahl's wife. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, that's great. That's a, that's a neat little aside, Eric Shawquin. I'm, that's what I'm here for. That's what I'm here for. Eric asides. Livening up this slow slog through this hellacious story. <laughs> I know you were going really quiet. I was like, wow, my notes must be well, really boring. Here we are. I didn't I didn't realize her name was Patricia Neal until that moment. Yeah. And <laughs> you know what? Someone should check that it is Patricia Neal. Party people, you might want to check because maybe my mind wandered and I was thinking, I wonder who Roald Dahl's wife is in the spirit <laughs> world answered and I wrote Patricia Neal. Um so she's the town librarian. She is no apparent relation to Roald Dahl. She, she meets a newcomer in town. Charlie Wilson Eric is yawning into his hands. Right. Um, he asks her to recommend books for his sons, who he is calling Chuck and Bill. She agrees to watch the boys so he can go run errands. It's revealed the boys are being mostly homeschooled, and the visit to the library is about Charles figuring out how to do that. In the words of the law enforcement officials interviewed, Patricia and Charles strike up a mild dating relationship, but mostly it seems about trying to get someone to take care of the kids. And he tells Patricia, never ask the children or talk to the children about their mother because something very bad happened. Something very, very bad. Very Nothing bad. that I did, but it was very bad. Not that I kidnapped them or anything. Not that I kidnapped them. I mean, it totally wasn't kidnapped. Way worse than that. Way worse than that. At the post office, Patricia sees a wanted poster featuring not only Charles's face, but two younger-looking photos of the boys that she saw in the library. She tips off the FBI. The FBI says we're sending agents. They tell Ruth to stand by, as we said earlier. Ruth sits by her phone for days because there were no cell phones then, and she says she barely got any sleep. When the agents arrive three days later in an address they believe to be Charlie's house, the place has been torched along with a vehicle that they believed he used while he lived there. They don't know who tipped him off. A note was placed in his P.O. box that allegedly said, Uncle Sam is coming. I don't know how they would know that. That was an interesting yeah. detail. I was like, and you know this how exactly? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're not introduced to Anyone who could have potentially left that note. Or, and they don't 
name anyone. It's just like, where would that note have yeah. come from? There, there was, I had a sense that this was a pretty packed episode, but I still felt like, wow, there's a lot more to this story. This is a, a lot more, a decades long saga. So the FBI puts, puts out a warning that Charlie is on the run, Charles, I'm going to say, and armed and dangerous. David Rogers, who we interviewed earlier, who was the head of the, um, I guess it was the Missing Children Task Force. I'm blanking on the name of it. Let me check. The Missing Children Task Force. I got it right, Eric Shaw Quinn. Wow. Congratulations, Christopher. Every now and then I get something right. Um, he himself flies to Stillwell, and uh, he's able to confirm that it uh, Charles actually did live there, that he bought property there in advance of the abduction, that he was planning to head there the whole time. Uh, and that he had gone on to place a new ad in Mother Earth News for a wife to have children with. Not a big, right, not a ringing endorsement of the personal ads in Mother Earth. Oh, I guess they do not want this uh, to be tarred with this brush. So David says Charlie's one of the few people in his career who's managed to disappear without leaving a trace for months or years. In 1989, Ruth appears on a TV show called Missing Reward with Stacey Keach. Did you ever watch this show? I don't think so, but I, I have this vague recollection of Stacey Keach hosting a yeah. sort of investigative journalism show, uh, investigative crime show, and I. But that's as much as I can remember. I think I just saw ads for it. Well, it doesn't generate any new leads, which is a bummer. And it was canceled after two seasons. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? <laughs> So the last reported sighting of Charles is in 1998, when one of his ex-wives believes she saw him on a flight from Boston to Dallas, a flight that originated in Maine. Did you believe this story? They really don't give a lot of details, but they, it's... A, I did. You did? You thought it... Okay. 
So in 2010, Monty and Ruth reconnect and launch a website. Monty is the private eye who agreed to work for her pro bono. There's so not an explanation for why they parted for quite that long. 24 years, 26 years after the abduction. When yeah. It's abducted in 84. And, and the episode is dated, I think, 2011. So I'm like, did this show bring them back together? Because they launch a website called Never Stop Looking. I'm going to guess that the launch of the website is what got the show to focus on them. Okay. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, so they launch this website and it, it includes age progression photos of the boys and Charles as well. And it's pretty clear that this special, which we're watching, which is pretty old, is also intended to get these photos out there. And they say that Charles might be balding now because he used to grow his hair out to cover his big ears. So if he's got hair, he's probably covering his ears with it. But if not, he's probably balding. Uh, he also has an eye condition that they call horizontal nystigmus, which manifests as squinting and tilting of his head, and his head might bob a bit as a result, and the pupils would vibrate back and forth. Seen that? Have you seen it? Yeah. Yeah. There was that. There was. Oh, what was that actor's name? It doesn't make any difference. There was anyway. an actor who had that, and they always cast him as the sort of eerie character because when you looked at him, his eyes were just racing back and forth. Right. Um. So. That, if you know anyone in your life, so I, we have a link. I actually did some. That's where the show ends, which is really frustrating. And we Eric called me and said, because you picked out this episode, I was like, do we want to do something that ends with this little closure? Right. So I did some research afterwards, and there's still no closure. Yeah. Uh, the missingkids.org blog has a piece dated May 12th, 2023, that features a much older picture of Ruth. She's still looking. She never stopped looking. But I will say this piece, and we will share it, it has updated age progression photos from that are more recent than the ones on this show. Uh, and they do look markedly different. They look like older men in these age progression photos. Um, yeah, she says these people probably don't even know that that you know who I am, that they have a mother who's looking for them. These are grown men now. It's just so hard for me to believe that today with social media and the interconnectedness of the world that they still haven't connected Ruth with her children. It's just, it frightens me to believe that it's possible to give someone a completely false sense of their past. I mean, what do these boys think happened? What's the story he's told them? I, I'm The writer in me was spinning right and left as I was watching this, but, but like, can you imagine being told at the age of, well, they're now in their 30s, it looks like from these photos, yeah, your mother was this, and you were taken away, and your whole, you know, everything. Yeah, your father I told mean, you. it's really mind blowing because they were two and four, so they don't mm -hmm. have any recollection of that part of their life. That, right. That's not a thing for them. There's nothing for them to recall, and there's no sense of loss because there's no sense of ever having had a mother. Yeah. Um. So, I can totally understand how they're not looking and wouldn't even consider themselves as candidates for this, because why would they? Right. Yeah, and I, it's a, it's such a strange. The thing that is so striking to me about the story is his premeditated approach to it. That he would want to like, like hiring livestock to breed. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it, he marries this woman, breeds, and then leaves. And he is all the while socking away money, buying property in his name, all of the places for him to go mm -hmm. while they, while they are still together. All of that is a part of his ongoing plan so that he can, so it's like, so what is the, the long game? What is the plan? 
for the children? What is he going yeah. to do? Where does he want to be? Who does he want to be? The other thing that I was like, I was interested in who they were, Charlie, the mm-hmm. father of the kidnapper, and Ruth, like, who were they? Like, that, the thing that you pointed out right at the beginning, what was it that they had in common? Like, yeah. one of the things that I considered was people who did not really want to marry somebody of the opposite sex, but did want to get married mm. and move on with life. You know what mm. I mean? Didn't necessarily, I didn't know that, but it was something that occurred to me. We meet Ruth and we see her and it's like, mm. it doesn't look like she rushes to become involved with anybody else as time goes on. Maybe she did. Maybe she's married and has new children, but I didn't see that. Mm-hmm. That didn't seem to be coming. So right. like, what was it that drew them together? Because I'm trying to figure out where it is he was going that he wanted to go with these two children and never come back. Like, what's that plan? Like, yeah. Why would the the marriage of it mean so little to him in the first place that he would do it just to have the children so that he could steal them to do what? Well, you know that and that yeah, and that, the thing that sticks with me is I don't I want these two kids for some reason, but I don't want to deal with them as babies. I need a woman around to do the diapering and all that sort of stuff and the feeding, but then as soon as they have a, a remote not like, to mention carrying yeah. them for 9 months and giving birth. To of them. course, absolutely. And but I don't want to adopt. Uh, you know, like it's really I, I don't know what it's like for a single man to adopt I, in, and in, 1986. in 1984 yeah. or 81 or whenever 81. this was starting. It really wasn't one of the things that was noteworthy about say uncle was that Mm-hmm. Like one of the reasons I was writing that book was that it wasn't really a thing. They right. were not letting they were taking gay people's children away from their actual children away from them at that point. And being a single person adopting was just almost unheard of. Yeah. You had to be a really big deal or rich or celebrity or something to be able to pull enough strings to call that to happen. And mostly people just bought children. I have to say, I, my head went to a very dark place, which is this is about sexual abuse. This is about I, I want these boys all to myself in a rural community, and I only want the women around to run errands and do what I say. I don't want to be partnered with a female. And that could well be yeah. part of the Like, I just cannot imagine what the objective was. Yeah. Like, it's like, okay, so you did this. What is the end game? What? Where are you planning to go? Did you really just want to go live in the woods with two children and and raise them and grow up together, see them grow up and get married and have children and move away and like have regular lives. That doesn't seem to be in keeping with everything else that he did, but if it wasn't that, what was it? Yeah. But it would something that isolated them enough that they're not looking for But I'll tell you, this is also the weird part of the story because when it was first introduced, the concept of his parents being so in his life, I thought, well, this is a spoiled brat who needs his parents to do everything. And they ultimately do help him with this plan. But he's simultaneously running away from their support. And I don't mean their touchy-feely support, but he's running away from his chief enablers, which seems like a big choice for someone as messed up as him psychologically. Unless they were... you know, knowledgeable of the plan itself. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they stopped being, now obviously they were older, but they stopped being mentioned pretty early on in the story and never come up again is also intriguing to me because, A, why are they not in jail for facilitate as accessories to this? Like one of the ways you might have gotten him to come back was to imprison his parents for accessories to kidnapping. Right. um, Which I don't think happened. It may have. Right. They don't mention it. It's a weird, it was a weird left, what was missing from the story was a lot. Yeah. But, okay, so so there's what's missing and then there's what you think the answer is. 
So, like, what were some of your speculations, your theories as you were listening to it? I, honest to God, that's part—I'm telling you the, the, my reaction, which was, well, then why did you do this? Because yeah. unless it's something really horrifically heinous, like you're saying, mm-hmm. I'm going to take them, grow, grow them up to be the adolescent boys that I want to rape, and then I'm going to rape them. Like, unless it's that, mm-hmm. which is, oh, my God, yeah. how hideous is that? What is it? What possible? Because if it is just to have a regular, natural life growing up with them, that's really a long way to go to achieve that end. I agree. And my head keeps going back to that idea that the original personal ad was about shared values. Did one of them decide they no longer shared those values? I'm not justifying anything. What were uh, the values? But she got her own personality and decided we weren't going to live off the land. Right. Polygamy. I don't know. She began to change her mind about something, and I punished her by pulling her kids away from her and running off to where I could practice whatever those values were. I guess, but how were those values so much more practicable in Rochester, New Hampshire, than they were in Saline, Oklahoma, or wherever the hell right. it was they went? Yeah, still well. Yeah, still no, well. absolutely. I think that it it what's what is interesting to me about the early years before he ran off is the amount of moving between town and country they were doing. Like they were, they did not seem like people who wanted to be in town. They always wanted to be on the outskirts. They always wanted to be. You know, the storage shed that became an issue with her stuff, and it looked like it was isolated and rural. And ultimately, he opens this office or this business because maybe he has to financially, and then that becomes this tether to a town he doesn't want. And then he says that thing about always wanting a less urban lifestyle. I'm like, urban? there are no urban areas but hardly in New Hampshire. Flipping like- houses doesn't sound like the, the activity of somebody who wants to live a rural life. If they'd gone off to Maine... You know, to be to harvest lobsters or to I, be dental floss mm. farmers or whatever. I you know then okay, but that isn't it. That's a yeah. pretty urban choice. You need a market to flip houses, and yeah. markets are not happening out in the middle of nowhere. Those are happening in town. And then he comes back and opens a real estate office. So none of those seems to be at the heart of the values. Plus, she left the farm and went to Madison to become. A social worker. So right. that's not the pursuit of a rural life either. But that, I have that question. Were we clear when she became a social worker? Like, did she become a social worker in response to going through this ordeal? That was sort of like, I didn't think she was a social worker. She was. Over. She was? Oh, she right, was then. at the time because she left the farm and went to live in Madison. Mm. And then she was literally, she was looking to get married. I see. And yeah. for whatever her reasons were, and she did. And the way that she met him was through a personal ad in... Mm-hmm. What is it? Mother Mother Earth. Mother Earth magazine. Oh, now I want to call it Good Earth, but that's not it. It was not no, Good, good Earth. Good Earth is that tea that I used to Good Earth is a tea. Good Earth is a tea, and Good Earth is also a novel by Pearl Buck, right? Mother Earth News. Right. And it still exists. I'm. Are you looking as, it up? It looks as though pretty much as a website now. I'm not seeing... Um, they're, you know, 50 years of... of Tips. I wonder if it's Rodale Press even. What is Rodale Press? Uh, Rodale Press is Prevention Magazine and mm. that sort of, um, you know, that uh, that school of uh, a little more off the grid, a little more. I'm looking for it to see if there are any sort of personal 
kinds of accounts, organic gardening, homesteading and livestock, real food, do-it-yourself, natural health, sustainable living, events, videos, and podcasts. Wow, that's pretty modern. Mm. Join now, store free stuff, land for sale. Um, but I don't see personals. Let's see, podcasts. You're checking out their podcast, right? Lover. Making soap and lie for beginners. How okay. to grow mushroom lick mushrooms. Um, chicken coop essentials. Where to find truffles? Oh, send me that one. <laughs> I absolutely. Will. I'm working on a chicken coop right uh, now. I can't wait. I'm sure the people in your luxury high rise yeah, building they'll love are it. Be thrilled about a chicken coop on the roof. It's a luxury chicken coop. Okay. Eric Jean Gwynn. No, I. Uh, I used to be friends with the people who lived behind Dolly Parton. Uh huh. And they lived in this spectacular mansion um, in the Hollywood Hills that I believe was the home on um, American Gladiators or something. One of those mm -hmm. those shows, one of right. those reality shows. They actually rented it out for using that. And Dolly lived just down the hill and oh, just, oh, just knocked below over your them. IPad there. And she built on the top of her house this little pink shed, this chicken coop oh, on the God. top of her house. And they actually bought her house when it went on the market so they could tear down that shed. Now, was the, did the noise from the chickens ever bother them? I think it was the view of the little pink shed okay, sticking me, up over the horizon. There's a whole podcast, basically, I think it's about Dolly Parton's America. Nobody really doesn't like Dolly Parton. Nobody. But let me tell you she something. She just turned 78. If she built a fucking chicken coop right next door to my property, I would be first in line not to like Dolly Parton. I think Eric and I think his name was David were not that They crazy, were not thrilled. They were not thrilled about that. Not they thrilled. loved her. They were glad to have her in the neighborhood, but they really wanted that coop out of there. Love Dolly. Hate your chickens. Hey. Your chicken coop or that pink shed. I don't know if it was anything. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, so uh, we're we're very suspicious. We're casting a lot of suspicion on organic farming in this episode. Well, I don't it's know just, if that's it's the way to go. It's an off the grid kind of. It's not a mainstream. Even now, they're um, they tend to be more hippy dippy, right? But that a less mainstream kind of approach to farming and living, and so that may lend itself to a more sort of survivalist, off-the-grid kind of thinking. I don't know. And I, they let me, didn't explore it, and it seems to me an essential part of the story. But let me also add this. I think our vision of what being a house flipper is is probably different than the type of work they were doing. They were probably doing the renovations themselves on isolated rural properties. They were living there, and yeah. that, so they could live there while they were renovating it. Yeah. That was what was the problem with that house that he bought. Yeah. But it still doesn't mean that you don't need a market for those houses. I know. You have to talk to a lot of people. you got to sell them. And yeah. that's not going to happen out in the middle of nowhere. Absolutely. Well, you know, this is there's a short list, I think, of stories that we've done where I've said, I want to read a book about this case. And I, I don't ever. I always say that. I mean, I've bought a few. We've done some stories that have, you know, but I have a lot of books to read. And right now I'm, right, on, I'm on Dragons and Gate Boys, and that's where I'm at. What's and the name of that? Yeah, a cur I think it's by Max Walker, who's an adorable gay romance writer. I think it's called A Curse of Flame and Scales. Um, Did you lisp when you said it? I a really like the flame and scale. Scales. Scales, I like it's it. Very, it's a very gay romance. I'm very gay. They I'm actually very... spell scales with a TH so that it would be the list would be in the title. Uh, a a scales. Hold on. I, I'm, I can't look it up right now. Max Walker, look him up on Amazon. He's adorable. It's a very fun little book. 
I'm not reading true crime right now, but I've got a whole shelf in my house of books that I've bought as a result of this show, of our podcast, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and But this is one of them. Like, I want to read a book about this case, because A, I'm confounded by this person, as you are. Yeah. But I feel like there is a lot here... And this, I want to be clear when I say this. When I say there's a lot here we're not being told, I'm not saying the actions of the person presented as the perpetrator or aggressor here are justified. I'm no. just saying I don't understand. Like, there's a difference between understanding somebody's motives and sympathizing with their motives. Like, your motive was greed. I understand that. It makes you a shitty, horrible person. Yeah. You stole from other people. But I people. still understand what you're but doing. But it's an understandable motive. But there is motive. no explanation here. I cannot yeah. reason. Like, I think it's the writer in me. Mm -hmm. I always try and, like, wrap my head around the motivation, or maybe it's the actor in me. What would cause somebody to do this thing? And I can't see an endpoint unless, as you suggested, it was something really hideous and dark, right. enslaving them into some sort of life of, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, unless it's that, I don't understand why you would go to this much difficulty right. to achieve this. I mean, I would think it would be easier to go on a camping trip at the, um, with Mama Ruth to the Grand Canyon and give her a little push at an appropriate mm -hmm. moment and say, oh, we lost mom and then raise the boys. If that's all I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, with mom and dad and Rochester and whatever, I this, might go down for the murder. And you're but zeroing this is, in on on what this is about, and I'm realizing it as you're saying this. This isn't about getting her out of the way. It was about punishing her. He put her through hell. He stole all the photos so she couldn't make missing. He birth. left her he destitute, was punishing her, and it's like that's that's. There's rage in what he did, as much rage as if he tried to strangle her. You know what I mean? Like, he was punishing her. She found her voice in that marriage, and she started to have opinions, and he wanted her to suffer. That's as close as I can I, get to I it. guess. I mean, that's as good an explanation as any, but it doesn't explain the long term. If the only reason to abduct the boys was to punish her, you know, that ship has sailed. Yeah. Like, there's no reason not for them not to know where their mother is or anything else at this point because they're grown up and he's probably dead. That's what I was thinking. He's probably dead. You know, if he's still yeah. alive, he's a little old man. There's very little, what are you going to do to him at this stage? Yeah. But it, it is about connecting those boys with their mother. It's about giving him, that mother her children back. That's what's just, it's horrible. She's gone her whole life without having access to her kids. At least letting the boys know that their mother exists yeah. and she's never not wanted them. Because you're up against whatever story he told. Which may be that she abandoned you. Yeah. God. Horrible. It's yeah. called A Curse of Scales and Flame, a magic and marvels novel. Yes, he's great. And the other one who's great, who I've really been enjoying lately, is Ben Alderson, who is another gay guy who writes gay paranormal romance. I'm not a paranormal romance person, usually. These two guys have gotten me into the, it. The Scales and Dragon really threw me for a loop when you told me you were reading yeah. it. I was like, you're reading a book with dragons in it? Well, it's dragons in contemporary L.A. Now, I've seen this convention before. This is now a, a urban fantasy podcast where people write a kind of urban fantasy story where it's alternate history, essentially, but it says recently in the past, or not that recently, like in the 1800s, a tear opened between dimensions and other paranormal beings came through and we had to learn how to work. We had to learn how to live with them. So it's sort of like the True Blood 
at, uh, you it's know, like tentacles of, in the grocery store. No, it's not at all like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a stupid show you would watch on network television, like Midnight or True Blood or something like that. You know, it's like uh, the idea is that you need that we have learned how to live with paranormal beings. So we have treaties and we have a government. But that they came the, from a rip in the. Yeah, no, whatever. There was a rip and like whatever, you know, it's fine. Is That's, the the, the is dragons had to come from somewhere. The right. kaiju. Well, they're, they're dragon shifters. That's the thing that I like. It's your boyfriend could turn into a hot dragon, and you can fly away on his back. That's what's so... Wouldn't that be fun if you had a boyfriend who could turn into a dragon and you could fly away? I Potentially, although <laughs> a dragon, that's pretty fierce beast. Yeah, that's true. Well, right, you a dragon on your side. That's the thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. or gets mad at you because you didn't want to... <laughs> Watch what Takes he wanted the kids to watch. Away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that could be really. And the other one writes dragon novels too. Dragon I, I don't know novels. if he's done any dragons. He's done fairy tale retellings that are really hot. Like he did, he did a Beauty and the Beast retelling where the Beast was a cursed vampire. Oh, that I'm yeah, really, yeah. I'm really down for that. Yeah. One of what was it? Once upon a time, the Drew Barrymore thing where she did the her take on the the new take on. Cinderella. Yeah, Ever After. I ever After, that yeah. was it. I love that kind of thing. That's really sexy. I think that's, that's a great. great. That one really works more for me. And I, yeah, you're right. I am the dragon person. You're not really the dragon person. I'm that's not big not on- not usually you. I like having sex with real people, so I'm not big on paranormal romance. I like paranormal stuff, but I've never been big into weighty high fantasy. But, you know, I'm as you saw, I'm trying to challenge my reading habits. I'm trying to read books that ask- uh, books I've avoided for, you know, like my whole life, you know. Like the ones in your library? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like all the true that crime books. And haven't bought and absolutely. Haven't well, maybe there is a book about this mystery. I don't know. I'm going to look for it. And I think the, but the thesis here, you know, I think what has happened to us is that this case upset us so much that we ended up talking about dragons and cute gay boys. Like, because... This was a really upset. This woman, it felt like this woman really had no one. And when she had to go up against her in laws, who had already been horrible to her, I was like, I want to write the revenge version of this right. story. And the in laws didn't get punished for yeah. being complicit in this particular. It's really, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. I mean, I know he's their kid, but Jesus. So next week. Our very own citizen detective, Clark Williams. We've been promoing right. his arrival all month finale. long. It's because it's Citizen Detective Month. Right. The dinner, uh, that's not the dinner party show. It's TDBS. Uh, TDBS Presents. Uh, we're doing, uh, he's going to visit us twice. We're doing two different episodes with him. He's going to talk next week about two cold cases he's been working on in the Midwest. And then the week after that, he's going to talk about the murder of a young gay sex worker here in town that has some eerie parallels to the Billy Newton murder, which is how we met him. So that is next week. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.